Hey guys, Toolman Tim here. This is my fifth and final recording for this road trip, at least I think it is, of, how do you want to call it, items or uh, historical artifacts from the, you know, the modern history, or sorry, the history of modern preparedness. Today I got another good one for you. A couple episodes ago, I did an excerpt from Kurt Saxon's The Survivor Newsletter, the Compendium Edition. This is another find I found at that same bookstore. This one here is called Liquors and Soda Fountain Drinks Like Granddad Used to Make. Again, if there's anything in here that you guys would like to, maybe someday these will get scanned. Maybe somebody has them scanned out there. But either way, this is really cool. So what this is, unlike the other books where it was, you know, um, say 10 or 20, whatever it was, volumes or editions of the newsletter compiled, this is articles and excerpts, all to do with things, uh, anything to do with drinks, whether they're alcoholic or non-alcoholic. I have another version, another type like that. This one is Kurt Saxon Survival Food Plus. So, of course, this one is all to do with foods. So we'll deal with that another day. So let's start with this. I'm going to read you the introduction, and I'm going to read you a small little excerpt on how to brew the proper coffee. Should go without saying, but I'd like to see what somebody... From the 60s and 70s thought and also get a kick out of this when they say like granddad used to make because kurt saxon god rest his soul he's gone now he would be as old as my grandfather so he would be the grand granddad's age and uh you know now my dad is like granddad used to make to my girls so it's all relative but it's neat that they look back to the past with such a nostalgia like we do as well so let's get into this one and check it out there are many, all right, make sure I got the right page there for you guys. There are many books on homemade booze on the market, and I suggest you get one if you've never made any before. Once you learn the basic principles, you can branch out to the more exotic recipes in this book. The recipes here aren't really difficult, but they are mostly for larger batches than you may want to tackle at the beginning. Also, the terminology herein, herein is pretty old-fashioned, and you may be hard to understand it if you aren't familiar with trade. Granddad's wonderful book of chemistry has a dictionary covering just about every term used herein, as well as descriptions of the process for working with all the materials you will be using. After some practice, you should be able to duplicate any liquor made in the last century and most which we have today. If you're a connoisseur, you might consider duplicating old wine labels and making booze any wine taster would stay was the real poop. <laughs> Even if you admitted yours was new wine made the old way, you could probably make a mint duplicating a line of 19th century booze. The biggest breakthrough in home booze making is C.W. Ireland's distiller. When you've mastered winemaking, you'll want to go on to the harder stuff. With the super still, you can run out all the pop skull you want and your friends will ever need. Using the still for alcohol is illegal, but I can't see anyone getting caught at it unless he advertised. CW's distiller was made for water purification and everyone should have one. I'm quite happy to use mine just to avoid the fluoride in the city water. It puts out up to six gallons of distilled water every 24 hours and should give you eight or more gallons of alcohol in the same period since alcohol distills much faster. Just to test CW's distiller, I ran out and bought a gallon of Red Mountain Burgundy for $2.99. It is the filthiest of the cheap wines and had I not been only testing, I would have used pink Chablis or Chablis. I poured it into the pot and turned the heater to high. 
When alcohol started coming over, I put it in between high and medium. In using this still, too much heat will cause the liquid to boil beyond the coil's capacity to distill it. This will cause the vapor to come out of the tube. You must turn it down then because this means the liquid is escaping and you will not only waste liquid but get less out of the still since the vapor is going elsewhere. In the beginning, the alcohol flows out without a break. At this point, it is from 150 to 200 proof alcohol. After a while, it will begin to trickle. Now it is from 100 to 150 proof. At this point, I called in a neighbor wise in such matters. He tasted a shot glass of trickle and pronounced it smooth, but with a tantalizing bite and said it was about 140 proof. After a while longer, it began to drip. This was from 100 proof on down to where the alcohol content in the dregs was negligible. Then there was little activity until the water began coming over in large drips and globs. I then took the alcohol away and left, let all the water come over so I could measure all the liquid. I wanted to see if there was much loss of alcohol in water due to the fact that the well-fitted lid had no gasket. I distilled my gallon at between medium and high. If you do it, you should set it at medium or even lower since water comes out over at a medium. That means it's over 212 degrees Fahrenheit, at which point water boils. Since alcohol boils at only 173 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, any increase in temperature over that would be a waste of energy and would also liberate water vapors to distill as part of the alcohol. When all the water was out, I measured both water and alcohol and found that there was less than two cups short. In the bottom of the pot, there was over a quarter inch of gummy sludge, this made about two cups, proving that there were no appreciable loss of vapor, alcohol, or water. Wow. It was a messy, it was messy cleaning out the pot, but necessary since I needed to let it go all the way for measuring, and since I wanted to see the amount of cruddy sludge left behind. If you do it, be sure to stop the still when the alcohol stops, and then empty the pot's sludgy contents down the drain. Cheap wine, and of course, any homemade wine or whiskey, will have fusel oils, which taste bitter. It can even be harmful in large quantities. Dick's 1872 process for music for removing fusel oils from alcohol follows to free alcohol from fusel oil. This may be affected by digesting the alcohol with charcoal. The alcohol is filtered through alternate layers of sand, wood charcoal, boiled wheat, and broken oyster shells. This removes all other impurities as well. Fusel oil can be extracted from small quantities of alcohol by adding a few drops of olive oil to the spirit, agitating thoroughly in a bottle, and after settling, decanting. The olive oil dissolves and retains the fusel oil. For the real poop on alcohol, for its own sake, get Granddad's wonderful book of chemistry. Alcoholometry starts on page 129, and anything else you want to know about it starts at 134. From my bottle of Red Mountain Burgundy, I got almost a quart of about 100 proof alcohol for $2.99. A fifth of 100 proof alcohol costs $6.10 plus tax. This cheap wine has 12% pure alcohol. That means it has 24%, or almost a quart, of 100-proof alcohol after distillation. If you cut the 100-proof good, goody with orange juice or something, you can get just as merry on half or less, since stronger stuff does it better than wine. This in itself would cut your liquor bill by half or more. By the time you'd bought 60 gallons of cheap wine, you'd have paid for the still and savings alone. I wouldn't worry about fusel oil in commercial wines or even in the homemade stuff. But if you are into making your own whiskey from mash, you ought to consider filtering it. If you want the alcohol for chemistry or making extracts, hash oil, flavors, etc., you can redistill the alcohol until you've got the purest stuff going. If you make your own wine, you can make pop skull to sell. 
The still would work just as well with whiskey mash. You could fit the still in pot lid to a cooker of unlimited size and get at least eight gallons of alcohol in 24 hours. My granddad usually had something going back in the hills. His still was primitive compared to CW's, and it took a lot of work. If he'd had my Aqua Vitae AC6, he would have made the proper sized hole for the still lid in a 55-gallon steel drum and used that. He would then have put the drum on the stove in a back room, filled it with mash, and then lit the fire. Then he'd have just sat back and relaxed as he liked to do. Also, he'd have had less to fear from ravenures, re I guess it's supposed to be revenuers, but it's spelled funny, catching him in his own home than when the still was hidden outside. If you want this still as soon as possible, send CW $180 plus 10 bucks shipping. He will, yeah, so that was kind of a plug for his still, and it looks kind of cool. So I don't know how many of you out there have done home brewing before, but I've dabbled over the years. You know, when I got interested, I did it, and then I quit. But two books that I really, really loved were The Joy of Home Brewing, that is the Bible of homemade beer, and one I found at the library one time that I've always wanted to try to find to own in my own library was the Foxfire Guide to, I think it was wine and beer making or something along those lines, but it was that was my introduction to the Foxfire book set. And if you've never read the Foxfire books, you need to. They are a virtual treasure trove of historical skills that we have lost. And it was just a great book. I love that entire look at the Appalachian Mountains and the life that they lived and the whole works. So now just spilt pop on the floor. I hope you like that. <laughs> well, that was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that little <laughs> brief interlude. <laughs> so I'm going to move on to coffee that is good because I've asked that question before and I've said, you know, what makes a good cup of coffee? And most people tell me it's whatever you think it does. And I will tell you one thing that a new coffee maker in my house makes a better cup of coffee than an older coffee maker because mine gets scaled up with calcium like crazy. And every time I clean it with CLR, I get a much better tasting cup of coffee every single time for a month or two afterwards. And then I get lazy. I don't do it. I don't realize it. Then I clean it and it tastes much better. So I thought, hey, why not look at what Kurt Saxon said makes a good cup of coffee? Coffee, that is good. To make a good coffee is apparently not so simple as it may seem. If general results count for anything, the coffee served at home, some of the best restaurants testify to this. And even the homemade morning cup of coffee is seldom perfectly satisfactory. A writer in the London Lancet deplores the fact that a good cup of coffee is so seldom found and declares that there should be no difficulty in making it and recommends that the simplest way is the best. I'm going to interject here, but Quite often you have a cup of coffee from a diner, that sort of thing. It's been sitting around all day. It's burnt. It's acidic. Just doesn't have that good coffee flavor. There is no better stimulant in the morning than a delicious cup of coffee. And there is no better way of preparing it than according to the following recipe. Do not buy the coffee already ground for it loses its fine flavor more rapidly when it is in the ground form than the whole. Have a small coffee mill and grind it yourself. Step one. <laughs> A mixture of two or more kinds of coffee will give the most satisfactory results. Two-thirds java with one-third mocha will make a rich, smooth coffee. Now for the recipe. Put one cupful of roasted coffee into a small frying pan and stir it over the fire until hot, being careful not to burn it. 
interesting. Grind the coffee, rather coarse, and put it into a common coffee pot. Okay, there we are. You ready for the next part? Beat one egg well and add three tablespoons of cold water to it. Stir this mixture into the coffee. What? Pour one quart of boiling water on the coffee and place the pot on the fire. Stir the coffee until it boils, being careful not to let it boil over. Then place on the back of the stove where it will just bubble for 10 minutes. Pour a little of the coffee into a cup and return it to the pot. Do this several times. This is to free the nozzle of the particles of coffee and egg which may have lodged there. Place the coffee pot where it will be kept warm but not get so hot that it continues to bubble. After it has stood for five minutes, strain it into a hot coffee pot and send to the table at once. That's it. Anybody out there ever heard of coffee with egg in it? I've had, you know, bulletproof coffee with butter in it on keto and that sort of thing, but never have I had anything with egg in it. Woo, boy. Anyway, that's interesting. You know what, guys? This was a little shorter episode than I planned. Let me pause you for a minute. I will find one more reading for you and I'll be right back. Okay. I got two more little sections here uh, in the realm of uh, bartending, actually. Well, one's bartending and one's hunting. This first one is called A Recipe for a Hunting Flask. I thought this sounded kind of interesting and it's kind of neat. As to the best compound for a hunting flask, and for those who are wondering what does he mean, well, you're going to be out in the woods all day tracking deer or sitting in a blind waiting for a deer. It would sure be nice to have something that you might find on the neck of a St. Bernard dog in the French Alps or something like that, right? Swiss Alps, I guess it is. So what does he say? As to the best compound for a hunting flask, it will be seldom, it will seldom be true that any two men perfectly agree. Yet as a rule, the man who carries the largest and is most liberal with it with his friends will be generally esteemed the best concoctor. <laughs> Some there are who prefer to all others a flask of gin into which a dozen cloves have been inserted while others younger in age and more fantastic in taste swear by equal parts of gin and noyu or sherry and marchino. For our own part, we must admit a strong predilection for a pull at a flask containing a well-made cold punch or a dry curacao. Then again, if we take the opinion of our huntsman, who of course is a spicy fellow <laughs> and ought to be in such matters, he recommends a piece of dry ginger always kept in the waistcoat pocket and does not care a fig for anything else. So much for difference of taste. But as we have promised a recipe, the one we venture to insert is specifically dedicated to the lovers of the Crathor. It was a favorite of no less a man than Robert Burns, and one we believe not generally known. We therefore hope it will find favor with our readers as a wind-up to our brewings. Recipe. To a quart of whiskey, add the rinds of two lemons, an ounce of bruised ginger, and a pound of ripe white currants stripped from their stalks. Put these ingredients in a covered vessel and let them stand for a few days. Then strain carefully and add one pound of powdered loaf sugar. This may be bottled two days after the sugar has been added. Wow, that is an interesting recipe. That is a lot of sugar as well. A quart of whiskey, a pound of sugar, and a bunch of fruit for flavor. All right. Finally, I want to read you The Model Bartender. I like this because it's as much a reflection on what makes a good, interesting person as opposed to just a good, interesting bartender. 
He should be a man of good character, straight personal habits, good temper, cheerful, obliging, wide awake, quick, graceful, attentive, sympathetic, yet too smart to be, quote unquote, worked, neither grum nor too talkative, of neat appearance and well-dressed. He should study the tastes of the patrons. For instance, in mixing a cocktail, most clerks make the mistake of putting in too much bitters, in which case the drink is spoiled, or rather is unpalatable to the customer. Most men like but very little bitters. Not me. I love a lot of bitters, but that wasn't in the article. <laughs> you should, in order to become proficient and popular, study all the points in the mixing of all drinks. There can be too much syrup or sugar, lemon juice, or other ingredient used in the same way as too much bitters in a cocktail. This is a profession that every man cannot master. There are men who would not make a first-class bar clerk in a lifetime. A clerk should not encourage hangers-on, loungers, or men under the influence of drink. In fact, he should never sell or give to a man in his cups, for this feature casts the greatest odium on our business, which could be made as legitimate as any if in the hands of a proper persons. Interesting. I like that. I love looking into the history of what people thought made a good individual. I think, speaking of what made a proper bartender in this instance also refers to what makes a person a good person or a good friend or a good host being attentive to other people you know uh I'm reminded of uh dale carnegie's how to win friends and influence people back in the day and really it just came down to observing the people you're interacting with and to some extent mirroring that back and that's really what makes a person uh, empathetic, I think, in a sense. And I guess a bartender has to be empathetic, or at least sympathetic, anyhow. I think the best ones are probably empathetic, but that's neither here nor there. So I'd like to hear from you guys. What is your favorite bar bartending? Now I'm going to say home brewing, homemade wine, homemade spirits, that sort of thing. What's your favorite book or list of books that you would say all people should have on their bookshelf? All preppers, survivalists, homesteaders should have on their bookshelf. So with that, guys, I hope you appreciated this look into the history of modern preparedness and some of my favorite heirlooms from that time. I'm going to continue to collect. If you guys happen to come across anything that you think I might be interested in, I will gladly pay for them and pay for the shipping. But yeah, from there, guys, I appreciate you. And by the time you've heard this, I should be on the road on my way home after a 35 to 40 day road trip, depending on what ends up on the other end. So with that, guys, you know, I always appreciate you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.